The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Patricia Raskin's Positive Living, the program that brings you practical and inspiring principles for living more authentic, engaging, and passionate lives. Created by Patricia Raskin, a catalyst for positive change. All comments, views, and opinions are solely those of the host, guests, and callers. And now, here's your host, Patricia Raskin. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome. Welcome to a specially pre-recorded program of Patricia Raskin Positive Living, right here on America's Voice, which is voiceamerica.com. And we have a great program for you today, something we don't always talk about, and I don't think we think about enough, but we are talking about improving our workers' conditions in terms of our food and our labor laws and buying local and eating local and really paying attention to helping our local farms so we can eat well. Our guest is Margaret Gray, and her book is Labor and the Lockavore. The Making of a Comprehensive Food Ethic. Margaret Gray is Associate Professor of Political Science at Adelphi University. Welcome, Margaret. Thank you, Patricia. Yes, I think it's really interesting. I just want to read for a minute. Labor and the Locavore focuses on one of the country's most vibrant local food economies, the Hudson Valley Agricultural Region, which supplies New York restaurants and farmers markets. This is based on more than a decade of field work with workers and farmers that Margaret Gray clearly documents how the romance of small family farms serves to mask the predicament of their migrant workforce. So we're going to talk about this and what we can do about it. So I'm, why did you decide to write this book, Margaret? Oh, I'm very interested in giving voice to those who don't have much of a voice. So um, I think farm workers in the Hudson Valley fit that bill very well. Most of them are immigrant workers. Um, And I had bought a house in the Hudson Valley and noticed these workers in the fields, and I became very curious. So this Mm. um, this then became my main research interest. Well, that and also with eating local, I think that's also part of your movement. And that's growing. And what do you think is the appeal of that? Oh, the local food movement is really just taken off. And I think there's mm-hmm. there's a lot of appeal. I think there's the idea that we're supporting local economies and keeping the food dollars close, that we can get fresh, very tasty fruits and vegetables. Um, and I think there's another element and that it's we're not shopping in the corporate system um, and facilitating a corporate food system. So I think there are several reasons why the local movement is really taking off. Hmm. And, you know, some people, though, have some ethical concerns about the conditions in which farm animals are raised. So should we have similar concerns about, you know, the human farm workers who are running the farms? 
Yeah, so my book is very much framed um, using food movement writing, so the, the Michael Pollans and the Barbara King solvers. And what I argue is when they talk about food and they talk about how we should take care of the environment and the land and watersheds and how we should care for animals, they're really discussing a food ethic. So I think in terms of discussing a food ethic, how can you have a food ethic where the farm workers don't become part of the conversation? So I think according to the logic of the food movement, yes, then we should be paying attention to farm workers. Yeah, very, very much so. You know, family farms, we often think of family farms, Margaret, as this, you know, wholesome American image, you know, the mom and pop operations. Is this the way that it is today? Yes, this is the this is a very complicated question because I think when we think of local farms, we do think of very small farmers and we have very romantic ideas about what small yeah. farming means, yeah. but we tend to conflate family, local, and small, and not every local farm is a small farm. Some of them are quite sizable operations, Um, but even on the smaller operations, what I found is this is a regional labor market that has regional management practices. So even on the smaller farms with just a handful of workers, on the larger farms with 60, 70 workers, I found very similar conditions. But I think the bottom line is our long romance with farms in this country really masks the conditions of workers, and we don't even think about them because our primary concern is the farmers. Yeah. Now, are the are a lot of the workers on the farm, are they mostly family members, or are some migrant workers from other countries? So the, the workers I interviewed were all immigrant workers from other countries. In the Hudson Valley of the workers I interviewed, approximately 70% were undocumented Latinos. Another 20% were part of a guest worker system. And the guest Mm -hmm. workers are here legally. They can be here for a certain amount of time, but they're still coming from another country. When I went on a farm where there was family labor, most of the time the family labor was in, you know, a management position. So since I was curious about farm workers, I didn't go to any farms where there weren't farm workers on the farms. Mm. Hmm. And did that change the dynamic of things, in your opinion? Well, I think what happens is that You know, compared to some of the large corporate farms that we imagine out in California where you might have several hundreds of workers, we're still talking about relatively small farms or medium-scale farms in the Hudson Valley. And what's unique is are several things. First, you have much more diverse farms, which means they're not mechanized. If out in California, you can have a hundreds of thousands of acres of just one crop, where here in the Hudson Valley, you might have vegetables and a variety of vegetables and you have fruits. And so that requires the hand labor. 
And what happens Mm -hmm. is you see a relationship developing between the workers and the farmer that Mm -hmm. I think is unique to many of these corporate farms. And I, I discuss this in terms of paternalism. And the paternalism is double-edged in a way because on the one hand, farmers are protecting workers and looking out for their workers and caring Mm -hmm. for their workers. But on the other hand, paternalistic practices can serve as a form of labor control. And so you have these immigrant workers who don't are not green card holders, they're not citizens, and then they're getting benefits from their job that aren't in any sort of labor contract. And there's a lot of motivation on their part to not complain about their situation and to just accept their conditions. Mm. You know, it's really funny, and I, I don't know where I'm getting this, but as you're talking, and I know that I know the image I'm going to say next is not at all, but there is a sliver of it, and that is I'm thinking of the movie Hundred Years a Slave. You know, where you had those workers, and of course they were owned. But there is a very teeny element of that in what you're saying, so, a teeny bit. Yeah, so I wouldn't compare Hudson Valley farming to slavery in many regards, certainly. But if you just think about the paternalistic relationship. That, yes, in, that's in what deep, I thought of. Yes, it's rooted in the sim- similar practices and then um, very much sort of the the mill town setting where you would have the benevolent employer in a mill town. But indeed, that relationship about protecting on the one hand but controlling on the other. Yes, because I would think that a lot of the workers and because of the language barrier really don't, you know, they don't have a lot to contribute in terms of management or ideas because of that barrier. I think given the opportunity, they could be contributing quite a bit, but that's not what they're there for, right? They're there really to put in those long hours of the planting, the tending, the cultivating, and the harvesting of our fruits and vegetables. Mm -hmm. And they're, you know, they're working very long hours. They get paid minimum wage, many of them for the most part. Um, But more important is that they're excluded from some really important labor laws. So they don't have Mm -hmm. a right to overtime pay, they don't have a day of rest, and they don't have a right to collective bargaining. So there's this whole structure, aside from the paternalism, there's this whole structure of farm work that makes this a vulnerable population. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so... What can we do about that, or can we? Do you see that changing, Margaret? Absolutely. So, Patricia, think about this. If you had gone into a New York City restaurant 15 years ago, and they wanted to serve you a roast chicken, and you said, oh, can you tell me what farm this chicken is from? They Mm. would probably look at you like you had three heads. Right. And I think that's where we are right now with the labor questions. But mm. what, what the food movement has done so effectively is train the public to ask questions, trained mm. us to better understand what are the conditions of animals, what happens with pesticides. And I think yeah. the food movement can really now move on to another level, more of a social justice level, and train yeah. us and and make us realize that if we are very concerned about sustainability and a food ethic, we need to be asking these questions and telling the farmers we care. 
Absolutely. Well, you know, there's a whole other issue here, and I don't know if this ties into what you're doing, but if you look at food today, we have more food allergies than I've ever seen. I mean, it's either dairy-free or it's gluten-free or it's low-carb or high-carb, but we're having a lot of issues in our country with food allergies, particularly around wheat. So I, I don't know if there's anything here you would add in terms of farming to that. You know, I don't know much about the health issues, but what I can say is that in terms of the food allergies, that's not only a problem that we have with the way our food system works today. Just consider that 25% of the food that Americans buy ends up in the trash can. And I think that this is related in a way that we're buying. Yes, and I think in a way we care less about our food because it's about convenience and because these corporate supermarkets are really dictating what ends up on so many of our plates. So I think that, you know, certainly there are so many benefits to eating locally, and I imagine health benefits as well. Um, I Again, I haven't done research in that area, but I do think that supporting local farms and making sure they're profitable can help us in a range of ways, including the the ideal that if they're more profitable, they can pass some of those profits on to their workers. Well, you know, you you talk about there are family farms that are not small farms. And then you talk about how a family farm describes the ownership structure of the business and that Walmart is a family-owned business since the family owns more than 50% of the stock. <laughs> but, but how would you – so talk about that. Yeah, so again, going back to this idea of what does it mean – to be a family farm. And I think when you hear family farm, it invokes certain romantic ideas about a mom-and-pop operation, people living off the land, being self-reliant. And family farm has nothing to do with the size of a farm, what they grow, how many workers they have. It's just about the ownership structure. So I make a comparison to say, you know, in a way, if you think about the fact that the Walton family owns 51% of the stock, maybe we could call it a family business, you know, just a funny analogy. But I want to get the point across that so often you'll hear, oh, this was grown on a family farm. And I think for us, we start to think that it's just family labor that goes into it. Um, and I think that the language that gets used, right, family farm, local farm, small farm, these get thrown around quite a bit, and they're intended to mean something, but they don't necessarily mean what we imagine them to mean. And so I think as consumers, we need to be careful to make sure that we better understand that those terms are being used in a marketing sense, you know, the way something is new and improved, new and improved, this is something from a family farm. Yeah, it's a, it, you're right. It's a romanticized notion. But now if, you know, if the farm workers receive the greater benefits and wages, which they should, would the cost of our fruits and vegetables increase? Well, if we talk about it nationally, there's an agricultural economist in California at UC Davis who did an analysis and said if the American consumer paid 16 more dollars a year, they would see 
a 40% increase in farm worker wages. Now, that's national. I don't have data for New Mm. York, but I can tell you that the Coalition of Immokalee Workers in Florida has successfully had an increase in a penny per pound of tomatoes, and that that one penny per pound of tomatoes means that farm worker wages in Florida, in some cases, have increased by a third. So really radical changes have taken place, but it's all about the increase being passed directly on to the farm worker. Hmm. So, I mean, it, it, it sounds to me that from, you know, you're writing a book that says we need to make changes, but they're doable. I think so. You know, so the Farm Bureau, the New York Farm Bureau puts out data to show that the average farm worker in the state makes $10 an hour and works 60 hours a week. Mm. If an overtime law passed, the person hiring that average farm worker could really just be pretty savvy about their business practices and they could lower the base wage in order to accommodate for the overtime pay. So farm workers really want to make sure that they're going to make the same amount of money at the end of the year. So now, Patricia, you might say, well, what good is an overtime law if workers are just going to make the same amount of money at the end of the day? Yeah. And But I want to point out that that's the average worker. You have plenty of workers who are only making minimum wage. I've met workers who were making straight minimum wage and putting in 80 to 90 hours a week of work. No overtime whatsoever. So I think we could see a dramatic improvement in the wages and the conditions for workers on many farms. And again, I think what it means is if you're not hiring the average farm worker, if you're hiring somebody who's only making minimum wage, it's going to affect you much more. But the the farmers that are paying 10 or $11 an hour, right now they're at a competitive disadvantage with somebody who's paying just straight minimum wage and requiring such extensive hours from their workers. Hmm. Does the government need to be involved in this, Margaret, in terms of laws and labor laws? I think so, Patricia. I don't think we've really ever seen a successful long-term structural change in terms of worker rights when the government has not been involved. And, you know, one of the main reactions, of course, is what is this going to cost farm owners? But again, if you look over the history of labor laws in this country, it's never been about, oh, this is going to be hurting the employers. It's always been about holding up labor rights and human rights and that the U.S. has for so long had to a model of labor legislation on the books, starting with the New Deal legislation, and unfortunately, farm workers have been left out of it since that time. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, this is such an important, I think a lot of us really did not realize this, and that's why you wrote the book, obviously, yeah, because you I, wanted to make people aware. Tell us what lock of war means, because I don't so, know what that means. A locavore is someone who eats local foods. So oh, is that a new word? I've never heard that word before. 
It's been around for a while. I know some people are not going to be familiar with it, but it was actually the Oxford English Dictionary Word of the Year several years <laughs> ago. Um, and the idea that just the, the local food movement has been taking off for, for several years now. So a locavore is somebody who tries to eat local foods. And, of course, if you're in a state like New York, that's very difficult to do year-round. But I think it really talks to people who, would, who emphasize buying local in order to support the local food systems. So what is your, um, you know, what is your conclusion? Is you, you've written a lot. You've explained a lot. Um, what's your conclusion in terms of where we need to go next to make so, this better for the workers and for the farmers as well. Yeah, so I really think that consumers and people interested in food need to look at the way we think about local farms with a more critical eye. I think when you consider the role of farmers in this country, they're held up as rural heroes. And I'm not saying that they're not rural heroes, but the public imagination very much puts farmers on a very high pedestal. And often our immediate reaction to any situation that, that puts farmers in a position to defend themselves is that we want to help defend the farmers. And so I think in the, the situation with their labor practices, even the kindest, hardest farmer realizes that they're following the law. If they're paying minimum wage and you're working 80 hours a week, they can, they can be okay with that because they're following the law. And I think as consumers, we have to ask, are we okay with that? That it's possible for somebody to work double the standard work week and not make any overtime for it. So I really, I th- this is very much about foodies and consumers starting to think about labor with a more critical eye mm. and, and trying to realize that the labor practices that we hear about on the industrial farms out west or in other places, all of those same situations are happening right here in the Hudson Valley as well. Yeah. Is there a way to know, as a consumer, is there a way to know whether the fruits and vegetables that we buy come from the local farms and, and that embrace and promote fair labor? I mean, how do we really know that? Well, so they, for example, if you're at a farmer's market, usually they have rules about how local they need to be, so you can ask those questions. But in terms of asking if they have fair labor practices, this is a tough one. You can ask how much they're paying their workers, how they feel about overtime. Um, the same way we might have said, hey, is, are your fruits and vegetables organic? Oh, they're not organic? Okay, I'm going to go shop at this organic farm stand. And when you move to organic, I'd love to patronize you. Mm-hmm. I think similarly we can say, are you paying a living wage? How much are your workers making? Um, do you feel that your workers are in a position that they can complain to you? You know, these are going to be tough questions for farmers to answer. And I think the other part of my research is I do not think that farmers are fully aware of the scale to which their workers just keep their mouth shut and don't complain. 
So I think the mm. questions can really sure. be more about the the wages that get paid. Yeah. Do any of now? I've seen this in grocery stores. I'm talking about supermarkets, not necessarily your, you know, Whole Foods, for example, but. Um, in terms of local f- produce, sometimes I will see in a supermarket where you're buying apples or oranges or the local fruit, it will say from a local farm. I don't see it very often, but I have seen it. Uh, I do think that grocery stores are trying to compete with the increased interest. And this has been great for local farmers when you have a, a an actual grocery store interested in buying their products. So I definitely know that there are smaller grocery stores that will have either a local food section or pride themselves that uh, so much of their food is local. And I think it's really about the consumer trend and the increased interest in local foods. And I think we can we can push that trend the same way we push the trend about animal rights and about the environment. We can push the labor issue as well. Do you think, Margaret, that food grown locally is healthier or not necessarily? I, I like to imagine it is. Um, I, I'm not sure what the concrete research is, but as you mm. said about the, the increase in development of food allergies, I mean, I'm, I certainly think that the fresher that food your food is, the more nutrients it has in it. We all know that. And so if you can be eating fruits and vegetables that were picked yesterday, they're going to have many more nutrients in them than food that's been imported from across the country or across yeah, the and, globe. Yeah, and there are also um, philosophies, holistic philosophies and certain food philosophies that will say to you, you know, eat local. You, you should be eating within your season and within your climate. So that would mean that you might not eat a pineapple on the East Coast if they're not grown here. Now, of course, we don't follow that. But that there is a philosophy that really believes that our systems get acclimated to the climate and we're healthiest if we are eating within that climate and that season and that place. Sure, I think seasonal eating is something that we can do if we're shopping from local farms, then we can't help but eat seasonally. Like you said, it gets a little tough in the winter, um, but I certainly know people who feel like, I don't want to eat tomatoes in the wintertime, particularly since they don't taste that great when you buy them from the grocery store in the middle of winter. Um, but again, I think you're talking about some health benefits that I don't fully know about. Mm. Do you think that local farms behave differently toward their employees than factory farms? Because we haven't talked too much about factory farms. I don't think they do. I think that the you have to understand that the local farmers, whether they're small or medium-sized, these are business people. And there are traditional labor practices, and there are labor manuals out there about um, agricultural practices. And I think a lot of it's modeled on what's happened in larger farming states. Mm-hmm. Uh, in addition, you know, I, I think that farmers have a different attitude because when I interviewed farmers, they, they knew their workers personally. They had a relationship with their workers. I think mm-hmm. on, the, on the larger farms, 
in the factory farms, the farmers often are using a contractor and they don't know their labor directly. But I think in terms of management practices, they're very similar. And in terms of when, you know, when the law does get broken or when the labor abuses exist and they do happen, they're they're very similar to the ones that happen on factory farms. We're going to close in a couple of minutes, but why did you choose to focus your research just on the Hudson Valley? Is that because that's where you live? Well, one part of it is that's where I live, but I think a second part is that the Hudson Valley has this local food economy that very much epitomizes what we imagine when we think about local farming. I mean, if you drive around the Hudson Valley in the summer, it's just beautiful. There are these Mm -hmm. incredible rural roads, and you can see orchards, and there are red barns. And I think we have a nostalgia for that. Um, And keep in mind also that the New York metro region is a thriving market for local foods. So all of these together, I think, really stimulated my interest in framing this research in terms of local food. Mm. All right. What is your closing thought? What would you like to leave our listeners with today, Margaret, on labor and the lock of war, the making of a comprehensive food ethic? I'd I'd just like to leave talking to people who are interested in changing farm workers' circumstances that I think there are two main things we can be doing. The first is really to be asking the questions, the same sort of questions we asked about animals and the environment. And the second is to look for farm worker movements that you can support because those farm worker movements are usually aimed at trying to create a deeper structural change that will help workers in the long term. Thank you. How can people find your book? Uh, my website is laborandthelocavore.com, or you can just Google Labor and the Locavore and find it easily. The book's for sale on Amazon as well. All right. And do you do workshops? And uh, do you do workshops? Uh, yes, well. I've, cer- I've certainly been speaking to many people, and increasingly I'm speaking to people in New York City who are interested in food and interested in how their own food dollars might help change the system. So I'm certainly open to come and talk to any group about this and would love to do so. All right. Thanks so much for being on the program. Really. Thank you, Thank you Margaret. All right, Margaret Gray, author of Labor in the Lock of War, The Making of a Comprehensive Food Ethic. Stay on the line for a minute. Thanks so much. All right, folks, uh, that wraps up uh, Patricia Raskin Positive Living for this week right here on Voice America, America's Voice. Write to me, Patricia at PatriciaRaskin.com. I have other programs, and you can look that up right on my website. Remember, stay healthy, stay happy, get the support you need, and know you can make your dreams come true. Until next time, I'm Patricia Raskin, right here on Voice America, America's Voice. Bye for now. Thank you for tuning in to this week's edition of Patricia Raskin's Positive Living. Be sure to join Patricia Raskin and another amazing guest next Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have an outstanding week.
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.